Welcome to the iFreak Show. Today on our panel, we have Abby Jackson. Hello. And Abby, we've had you on as a guest before, but this is your first time as a panelist. Can that you... is right. Yes. Sorry. I couldn't. Yourself. Yeah. Um, so I'm in Vancouver, BC, Canada, and I'm an iOS developer currently working on uh, SDKs. But uh, the funnest project I worked on before was I worked on the Intel Vaunt AR glasses that was shut down last year. And um, I mostly work in Swift. I've been on Swift since uh, version two, but recently I've been in Objective-C and that's actually what our topic was about, about learning Objective-C as a Swift programmer. Oh, definitely. Yeah, we loved having you on the show. So we thought it'd be great to have you sit in and as the panel. So, so welcome. Glad to be back. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. And we have a guest today. Please welcome Michael Petrie. Hello, how's it going? Pretty good. Also known as Capsi uh, around the around the internets. Uh, Capsi, can you tell us a little bit, a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I, I uh, currently live and work in Japan. I'm from New Zealand, uh, and I work for a company called Zozo Technologies. So they make um, they're they're uh, they're traditionally a fashion EC site. They're branching into more interesting sort of measurement body measurement tech. So I'm, I'm quite heavily involved in that. Um, I work a lot with Swift and Objective-C and C++, so it's sort of a mix of all of those. Um, yeah, so it's a, it's a very interesting um, very interesting job. I get to speak a lot of Japanese, and um, there's a lot of interesting communication um, problems to be dealt with, which is, is, is a lot of fun. And um, yeah, as, as a part of my personal projects, I'm very much into graphics and music and programming. So mixing those three as well. So I like to, I like something that can create some output. Okay. Oh, very cool. So you came across our attention um, because of a talk you gave at TriSwift on ray tracing. Can you tell us a little bit about ray tracing and what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So when I was, um, well, we we all sort of submitted papers for the TriSwift talks. And traditionally with those kind of things, I always had the impression that, well, if you're going to submit something as part of your company and use company time to work on it, you've got to kind of talk about what your job is about. So it might be, you know, if, for instance, if I do measurement framework stuff, it should be sort of, you know, maybe how, how to use a C++ framework and sort something like that. So, you know, while that stuff's kind of interesting, I was kind of like, oh, if I'm going to submit something, I'd really love to do something that I want to do and I want to learn about. Um, so 
I checked with everyone and they said, yeah, that's totally fine. You can do basically whatever you want. So I was like, okay, well, ray tracing is something I've always wanted to learn about. Um, seems sort of like a, quite an untouched, untouchable topic. Like it seemed quite difficult to me. So I really wanted to try and get into it um, and figure it out. And at the same time, you know, using Swift so we could see how Swift could help us there or what kind of advantages Swift could bring if we, um, if we did some ray tracing in Swift. So I, I submitted my, my, um, my proposal and I got it accepted, which is great. So I got, got to work on um, ray tracing for a wee while and learn about it um, from basically nothing. I didn't really know much about it. Um, I had a little bit of sort of more traditional rasterizing graphics um, type experience, you know, with like OpenGL and Metal. But uh, ray tracing was a real sort of um, a real mystery to me. Um, so it ended up being a lot of fun. Um, I learned a whole load and uh, yeah, it was great to talk about it. Oh, very cool. Now, like, can you give us a brief description of what ray tracing is? Cause I'm having trouble visualizing it. I, I've seen it. Yeah. Uh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so ray tracing is, is, um, fundamentally it's the same sort of technique used to render 3d graphics as what you would see in like Pixar or a Disney film. It's, um, fundamentally it's very similar. And it works simply by um, taking every pixel on your screen and shooting rays from the point of view, wherever you are in the 3D scene. And those rays, they go through the scene and um, they go through all of the objects in the scene until they figure out when they hit something. So when they hit something, then you know, okay, um, based on the material properties of that object that you hit, you can change the color of that pixel. So say for instance, if you shoot a ray into the middle of your scene and it hits say like a, a red cube, then you would look at those properties and you say, okay, I'm gonna draw this color red. Um, it gets interesting when you say, well, okay, I have a, a particular material that say might be reflective or it might be like a mirror say for instance. So when you hit, a, hit a, an object that, is, that has a material, you know, reflective material like that, um, you wouldn't just color that pixel red, you'd create another ray at that intersection point and you'll calculate the angle at which that ray bounces off and potentially hits other objects in the scene. So you can sort of understand how it starts to get very um, computationally intensive very quickly if you have lots of, um, lots of sort of ray reflections and lots of rays to begin with. Um, you can sort of get, you know, millions of, I think some of the scenes I was working on maybe had a few million rays per image. Um, but, you know, you can get up to billions of rays per image quite easily. So that's why it's, it's, it's traditionally being part of um, pre-rendered or offline rendering um, graphics for, for movies and that kind of thing. Um, it's not quite yet ready for real time, although that is starting to change. Um, NVIDIA have been pushing their RTX hardware very, very, um, very strongly recently. And that's, that's has specific circuitry designed to, to, um, deal with all of the ray collisions and all of the, um, all of the math, um, involved with ray tracing there. So the, so the future is very interesting for ray tracing. You might start seeing it in games and that kind of thing. So, like, if you're trying to set up like, a real basic ray tracing, would call it a setup. Like, what would like it would be a very basic one, like a hello world for ray tracing? 
Okay, that's a very good question. So I think that the best way to get into ray tracing the way I got into was I, I read um, Pete Shirley's books. Uh, um, if you don't know Pete Shirley's books, he, he wrote some very sort of simple um, direction called ray tracing in a weekend, which is perfect, right? So the hello world for those is basically you set up a scene, 3D scene, and you set up a camera. Now in that scene, you just draw a sphere, like a, a perfectly round ball. Um, and the reason for that is to calculate where the rays hit that sphere are uh, a very, very simple compared to say like a, you know, complex sort of um, animated mesh or something. So that's, that's sort of your hello world. You'll see a lot of, if you search for ray tracing, you'll see lots and lots of images of, of spheres and, um, and, you know, lots of reflections and that kind of thing. But yeah, if 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 any if you're looking to get into ray tracing, or if that, if you're looking for a place to start, then Pete Shelley's books are great. They they talk you through the whole thing. They don't get too heavy on the math. Um, it, it goes into the math enough that you can get into it if you want, but it doesn't sort of. It's like some books they'll they'll have a whole chapter on the math, which is just like if you're new to it, it just totally fries your brain before you're even writing any code. Now you said that the uh, doing this is extremely computationally heavy, right? Because of the th billions, potentially billions of rays bouncing all through the scenes. Um, do you think that this is something that we're going to be able to see come to uh, handheld devices? Because I'm going to assume that right now it's pretty heavy for for like a handheld game, and even when it comes to uh, you know Mac versus Windows, a lot of the graphic systems out there or AR systems out there, you, you can't really even run them on Act because they're not powerful enough. So what do you see for the future for that kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, it's probably not ready for mobile. Um, and the reason is that mobile is just, you know, you've got your battery life and you've got your, um, you're running other apps at the same time. And then, you know, um, I guess before we get into that discussion, you probably want to dis discuss the difference between real-time ray tracing and, uh, offline ray tracing. So the ray tracing I did was very much offline in that you cannot, uh, say for instance, if you have a uh, um, predefined frame rate, like 60 frames or 30 frames per second, you have to draw an entire image within that time. If you can't do that, then it's going to be very slow. It's going to be very uncomfortable. So I think, um, I think the, the video I did for the tri Swift conference, it was, it took maybe, um, it was in the range of 20 or 30 seconds per frame. So that's nowhere near real time. And that was on like a, a pretty powerful MacBook Pro. So you can imagine like moving that down to mobile, there are quite a few challenges there. Um, but having said that, um, the, NVIDIA have been really pushing this RTX thing. So RTX is like a, a new sort of graphics, sort of hardware technology that they're putting into a lot of their um, new graphics cards. And the idea is that you have circuitry that's specifically designed to run those calculations much faster than if you were to run them on, say, just a normal graphics card or on the CPU. And um, yeah, I mean, these are these are really big graphics cards that, like, you know, they cost like a thousand bucks or something. But you know, in the future, it's not hard to imagine that they might sort of get smaller and faster and faster until um, until they until they move into mobile, for instance. So, what did you demonstrate during your talk? So during my talk, um, it should be on YouTube if I can find it. Yeah. So there was the, uh, uh, during my talk, I only had five minutes 
So um, it was it was a lightning talk actually. So I was pretty pretty short, um, pretty difficult to try and get so much information into such a short time. Um, but basically, I, I I built this very small, simple animation of some rotating spheres uh, in Swift. It was about I think 500 lines of code. Um, didn't use any APIs. No, you know, there's no metal. There's no um, sort of core graphics APIs or anything like that. Um, it's literally just code, a whole bunch of math, and writing it out to a file. Um, so I demonstrated that at the start of my talk, um, which I think was quite. I think it, I think it, I think it was quite um, interesting in the fact that perhaps a lot of people at at the conference didn't realize maybe didn't realize that you could do that kind of thing with just code. You know, I think uh, a lot of people perhaps think that you might, might need like a complicated API or a lot of setup or a lot of code to do something like that. So I, I think if there was any sort of takeaway from that or anything I wanted to get across to people was that you can actually do quite interesting things with, without having to rely on lots of language features or lots of APIs or, or lots of frameworks or anything like that. No, it's very cool. So I'm, I'm, I'm searching the internet and looks like the, the talk is available online. It's on YouTube. It's called Graphics Like Pixar Using Swift. Is that the right one? That sounds like the one. Yes, indeed. Okay. So yeah, I look forward to seeing um, what it is. So what's involved with uh, writing this in Swift? Like, what, How do we set this up? Um, now, the code for this is actually on GitHub. So that's probably the, <laughs> the easiest way to explain it. Um, but it is very simple. It's, um, yeah, yeah. So, so if there's a link that we can share with the listeners after that, that would probably be great. But just, just to, um, just to give a, a brief overview, um, basically it's a, it's a recursive approach, ray tracing. So, um, the, the ray tracing algorithm as it were, would iterate through each pixel on the screen and for each pixel, um, it would define, well, before we do that, we define a virtual camera in our scene. And from that camera point in our scene, we shoot rays through each pixel and we figure out, or, or sorry, for each of those rays, we figure out what objects in the scene we've hit. And then for each of those hits, we go through, we iterate through a bunch of materials um, until we find, oh, until we find the, the material for that object. And uh, based on the material, maybe you'll shoot out more rays or maybe you'll return a color. So if you, if you return a color, um, we literally just color that pixel in. So the, the pixel is just a big sort of memory buffer. And then we write out that buffer to an image. So it's, it's really simple, actually. Um, and for the animation, um, I think I wrote out maybe about was about i think eight seconds at maybe 30 frames a second so it was it was i think 240 frames um so so there was a, a little animation mechanism which moved the camera slightly um, in a rotation every frame so it would print out one of these frames move the camera slightly print out another one do that 240 times and at the end um, you have 240 images sitting on your hard drive there's another little script that used fm ffmpeg to convert those into a video and there you go you've got a very simple video obviously that's you know that's uh, a world away from what someone like pixar would do 
but um, I, I think it was it was important to sort of be able to demonstrate that you can actually create a movie without having to do a lot and being able to demonstrate the path of that process, I think was quite important. Okay. What, like what technologies are you using to create the, the material? Are you using metal or how is this done? So um, I'm just looking through the code here. That'll probably help me. So, so for the, I don't know, can you see the, um, the animation itself it might help if we can, um, if you know what I'm talking about. Is that possible to view it? I'm not sure. Sorry, I don't have I don't have a link here. Okay, maybe um, I'll have to get get you to imagine it. But basically, the scene I, I drew was like a it was just a bunch of spheres. I think about twenty or thirty spheres, and they were sort of randomly laid out, different sizes, different colors. Um, and each of those had sort of one of three basic materials. So um, you define your material types, um, but they're, 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 when you get down to it, there's sort of only a few basic physical properties that each material has. Um, so in the case of um, well, the animation I built, um, you have um, something called a Lambertian material. A Lambertian material is, if you imagine like a real world substance like say chalk or something that just doesn't reflect anything. It's, it's, well, that's not, that's not entirely true. It does reflect, but it doesn't, it's not shiny at all. So, um, another example would be something like some, some types of wood are very, very Lambertian. Um, and then there was a metal material, which is pretty obvious. It's, it's just a, um, a metal and that also has a fuzz factor. So the fuzz factor in the metal is, is like how much the metal blurs the reflection, if you know what I mean. So if you imagine like your MacBook Pro, it would have a very high fuzz factor because you, it's, you can't, it's metal, but it's still not really reflecting anything like a mirror. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you'd have uh, a mirror, which is a very low fuzz factor. It's, it's basically, it's reflecting rays one to one. Um, like if you okay. shoot a ray at a, at a piece of metal with a very low fuzz factor, it will bounce off like a ball. That makes sense. This episode is sponsored by GitLab Commit. GitLab's inaugural user event brings together the GitLab community to connect, learn, and inspire. Speakers will showcase the power of DevOps in action through strategy and technology decisions, lessons learned, behind-the-scenes looks at the development lifecycle, and more. Learn how to innovate the future of software development by registering today. GitLab Commit Brooklyn, September 17th, and GitLab Commit London, October 9th. You can find it at devchat.tv slash GitLab Commit. Okay, so I'm, I'm looking at the video you have up here, and it looks like, like a chessboard, like checker pattern. You've got some marbles on there, like a red. Yeah, marble. yeah, that's one. And that's the that's one where, okay, you're shooting a, red, at, you're shooting a ray at the red marble, um, it doesn't reflect, so you get the color. And That's correct. Yeah. yeah, so I'm looking at another one, which has more of a mirror thing. You shoot the ray at it, it bounces off, goes to the floor, goes to like the, the surface, so you can kind of see the checkerboard in the actual the marble. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so, okay. yeah, so that would be a metal, um, a metal reflector, or a metal material, sorry. Um, cool, how do and you get the model for, for the marbles and the board and all this? So all of that is just generated with code. There's no like uh, meshes or 3D model information or anything like that. So 
Um, and that was sort of what I touched on with the talk is like the fundamental hello world thing is like how to create a sphere in ray tracing. Um, and there's a mathematical equation to do it. I won't get into it too much, but it, it, um, it sort of involves solving two equations. Um, so you have an equation for a ray, which is, um, is like the, you have an origin and then you have a direction and you have a, uh, distance along that direction. Um, and that can define the array and where it might hit. And then for a sphere, well, if you think about a sphere, you can have um, can actually have three different points of contact, um, if that makes sense, or three different types of contact. So you can have no contact, which means you just completely miss the sphere. You can just share the surface of the sphere, which is pretty unlikely, but it does happen. And then you can go through it. So you, if you hit one side of the sphere, you could imagine the ray would keep on going and hit the other side. So the equation sort of is based on those three scenarios. Um, and obviously, if you miss it, you don't draw anything. If you hit it in either of the other two cases, then you look at that material that it, it holds and then you, you draw a pixel. So what if you were um, working on something where you had something more than a sphere? Uh, are there, what kinds of models could you use with this? Or uh, how could you do something that was you know, you're that, doing a that, cat, cat video. A cat video. <laughs> That's a very good question. That's sort of taking ray tracing from like Hello World to like thousands and thousands of lines of code and lots of, lots and lots of stuff. But that's a very good question because I did actually do something like that. And to be honest, for my TriSwift talk, I actually really wanted to do something like that. I um I like I like classic cars. Um so I had this this model I found on the internet of a Mercedes 300SL Roadster. It's kind of a classic, classic Mercedes. Um, and I wanted to draw that rotating around instead of just the spheres because I thought that would be really cool. And it would, you know, like spheres are kind of abstract, but when you take like a, a real world object, it, it sort of makes sense to a lot of people. Um, so unfortunately, I, I really worked on that, but I didn't quite get it in time, done in time for the TriSwift um, talk, which was probably good because I think it would have been too much information anyway to, um, to pack into such a short talk. Um, but I did actually, I did actually post on my Twitter. There is a if you go to my Twitter, there's a picture of a or a movie of a rotating Mercedes. Um, it's very similar to the, the TriSwift thing, except it's a Mercedes Benz rotating around. Um, and it's got, you know, like a shiny paint reflection material. Um, and it um, uses something called normal mapping, which is, is like taking textures and applying surface properties to them. So they, they kind of look a little bit 3D. Um, but to answer your question, the way to do that, it was very difficult. It was extremely difficult. It really, 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 really um, almost broke me. But it was well worth it. Unfortunately, I couldn't quite get that going in Swift, though. I had to had to fall back to C plus um, plus. C was just better for the job there. Um, but there, there was there was a very good um, paper that I followed by um, a guy called Ingo Wald, and he's sort of a sort of quite well known. Um, I think he's actually the CTO of Nvidia for ray tracing now. Um, but he wrote a PhD on how to how to do fast real-time ray tracing just on the CPU. And this was quite old. This is like 2004. He wrote this. Um, it's, his, it's his thesis. And it, it covered a lot of like how to make that fast and how to do it in the first place. So 
to answer your question in a roundabout way, if you have something like a cat or a car or whatever, you'll start off usually with a mesh. So a mesh will just be a whole bunch of points and those points define triangles, if, if that makes sense. So when you say, when you take those triangles, you can then, um, you need what's called a triangle ray intersection algorithm. Um, there are a whole bunch of different ones. Most famous is probably called, it's, it's called the um, molar trombor, which involves a whole bunch of um, interesting math. Um, and um, uh, there's a lot of linear algebra um, used to, to work that out. Um, but the, the idea is that it basically becomes the same thing as the spheres once you have that triangle intersection. So you can go through, instead of just going, uh, iterating through all the spheres in your scene, you then iterate through all of the triangles in your scene and you figure out which rays add in which triangles and draw the material. The problem with that is that if you have a big mesh, um, and in the Mercedes-Benz render, um, if you look at it, it's, I think it has uh, close to a million triangles. So if you do the math on that, it gets pretty insane pretty quickly. If you take, um, uh, it's worth pointing out as well, when you ray trace, you don't normally send one ray per pixel. So if you do, it sort of looks a bit, looks a bit naff. You need to normally send, you know, quite a few rays per pixel to get um, an anti-aliasing effect. So if you imagine if you have even just a small image, say 200 by 300, and you send, say, 16 rays per pixel, and then multiply each of those rays by a million triangles in your scene, it just gets unbearably slow. It's, it's horrible. Um, I tried it first with um, the Mercedes render, and... It, I think it took about 15 minutes, and this is just a naive implementation, 15 minutes, and that was actually a low detail model. So the original model was like 1 million triangles, but the low detail model was only 70,000, and that still took 15 minutes for one picture. So you can imagine multiplying that by 240, you'd, you'd be there for days just to get an animation out, and it didn't look that great anyway. So now th this is a well-known problem, obviously. Um, and that's what Ingo Wald's um, thesis covers a lot, is how to speed up that process. How do, we, how do we build structures and data structures and algorithms so that we don't have to like iterate every single triangle for every single ray? Um, and the answer is, of, of course, you start building these um, are called spatial subdivisions or um, binary, binary spatial partition. Um, it's also called a KD tree. So um, yeah, binary space partitioning. Sorry, I forgot the name here. Early in the morning here. Yeah, binary space partitioning. So um, the idea is that you will surround your triangles. Um, so if you have a set of like a million triangles, you surround them with a big box, and then you'll split that box iteratively again and again and again, um, making a tree. And each little compartment or sub box in that box will only contain a few triangles. Um, so you keep doing that until until you only have a few triangles in each box, and then when you send a ray, you can um, quickly figure out which. Um, if you imagine it's like a binary search tree, where you can imagine you can with each uh, child box, you can eliminate half of the triangles in the whole mesh. So instead of becoming a you know like an O n problem, it then becomes like an O log n problem or something. Um, and that speeds it up a lot. That gives it a, a, a huge speed up. I think when I first implemented that, as I say, it went from like 15 minutes to down to about five seconds. 
um, for for rendering the Mercedes Benz. And so all that studying for uh, interviews that we have to do, we complain about, we'll never use. It sounds like you found a use for it. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Like O O numbers are definitely when, and I think that's like where that whole you know big O notation comes from is that it sort of becomes useful. You know, if you're iterating over say like a hundred or even a thousand objects, it really doesn't matter. You know what algorithm you use because computers are really insanely fast. But when you get to that level where you're iterating over potentially billions of objects or you're doing billions of iterations, then it really does matter. It does make a huge difference. Um, I just have a question if we can back up just a tiny bit. I'm wondering for our viewers or viewers, listeners, and um, also <laughs> my, myself uh, who don't have yeah. very much 3D or graphics rendering experience at all. Um, when you're talking about making or using a mesh, where would someone who's just starting to learn this kind of stuff either get a mesh or what kind of tools would they use to create a mesh to practice with or play around with? That's a good question. Um, so there are a number of sites on the internet where you can get quite good meshes. I think, um, oh, I can't even remember the name of the one I, I, I got mine from. I think it was, um, I can't remember names, but maybe we can come up with a list afterwards. But there, there are a number of um, sites where you can download meshes for quite a small, um, I think I paid about 50 bucks for the, the Mercedes, which is pretty good value. The mesh wasn't great, but you know, I fixed it up and it was pretty good. Um, but the, I think that if you're a beginner, those kind of meshes might be quite difficult to work with because they are very big. And as I said, if you, if you, with the naive implementation, you're looking at 15 minutes for a render or something, you're not going to be able to iterate over changes very quickly. So what I'd recommend is you get a tool like Blender. I don't know if you've heard of Blender, but it's an open source 3D, 3D graphics package. Um, and it's it's really full featured. It's quite amazing that you can get that now, and it's it's completely open source and free, and it does all these amazing things. Um, but if you get a program like Blender, then you can make your own scenes. So what I did when I started out um, building these, building the triangle intersection algorithms, is I didn't start out with you know like a, a seventy thousand poly model, which would just be insane. I just started out with a very simple cube, um, and if you imagine a cube, it's like it's got six faces and each of those faces is split into two triangles so you've only got 12 triangles there to work with and then it becomes easier to sort of debug and figure out what's going wrong when you know problems inevitably occur so do you recommend doing this with swift is is that is this the right language for what we're doing or is this kind of a, just a fun project and we should really be doing it with c++, c++? yeah i guess it, it depends where you what you're trying to do i think if, if you want to learn swift and at the same time learn about graphics i think it would be a, a really worthwhile project to do in swift um, or if you know swift already and perhaps you don't know very much c then it would be really um, it would be a great way to learn about graphics um, and i'd also say that um, ray tracing is actually a really 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 good way to learn about graphics um, just because you can get right into it um, you can do the hello world thing with like a couple of hundred lines of code maybe and you don't have to like if you look at like an OpenGL tutorial or a metal tutorial you've got like all this boilerplate that you have to use you have to um, especially with OpenGL you have to set up all these like um, platform abstraction layers like where you have to use a library like GLFW or something and it's just it's if you're a, if you're a newbie it's 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 sort of really quite um, cognitively taxing it's it's a lot of a lot of stuff to get in um, before you can even draw something on the screen. 
Whereas with ray tracing, if you look at like Pete Shirley's books, you're like the first book, you're pretty much drawing like within, within 15 minutes, you've got these quite pretty colors on the screen and you, you, you much more directly connected to what's happening. So you can, if you set up a quick build process, you can make a change to the code, build, look at the picture you made, make another change, build and, and just keep iterating like that. And once you get into that sort of flow, it becomes really easy and quite, quite fun because you've, you're always getting this, this very direct visual feedback. Um, yeah, so I, I think, you know, Swift is a great language to, to do that in. If you wanted to get more serious and like do something like I was talking about with the, um, you know, having a high, high poly mesh or trying to, trying to um, implement all of the optimizations, um, especially when you get into things like um, SEC intrinsics, um, which is um, using something called SIMD. I don't, I don't know if you know what SIMD is, but SIMD is, is where you work on several values at once and the, the processor can actually do that. Um, so you could say, instead of calculating one ray at once, you could calculate four, four rays at once, for instance, um, if the conditions are right. Um, doing that kind of thing, you can do it in Swift, but it's sort of, I think Swift is, um, it sort of becomes a bit, the overhead for doing that kind of stuff in Swift is sort of, it, it's almost more than C++ in a lot of ways. Um, so unfortunately, I, I'd probably recommend you just go the C++ route if you want to, to get serious. Um, but yeah, maybe Swift, they'll, they'll fix that up in the future. Okay, very cool. So we've got a little bit more time and we wanted to get to another topic where, which you had, we talked about how we're all developing wrong. <laughs> That's one way of putting it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I wouldn't so much say as we're all developing wrong. I think it's more, um, how, how about in your own, in your own words, modern programming languages often attempt to solve problems that don't exist. Much more. Yes. Yes. I think, I think that's probably more accurate. And I think, I don't think there's this sort of any insidious kind of like, no, which we're doing it. We know the right way. And we just, we want to do it this way anyway. I think it's very much, it's sort of something that's crept in to modern languages and modern ways of doing things without actually really being, you know, anyone being aware of it, it's sort of, it's sort of just crept in and now all of a sudden it seems to be everywhere. Um, and the idea is that a lot of modern languages, they sort of, they operate on, or they're, they're built on this philosophy that the programmer doesn't know what they're doing and they try and save the programmer from themselves. Um, and in the process, they actually hide a lot of the things that you really actually really need to know to do, um, to make something good or make something optimized and fast, for instance. Um, and while, you know, in the short term, that might help you. Um, and I don't disagree that, you know, having high level abstracted languages where you can very quickly do things is good. I think you also need to have that access to the low level and you need to really have the underlying knowledge um, to, to, to be able to, um, to, to write fast and, and interesting programs. Um, so to give you an example, um, if you look at something like Swift, um, and don't get me wrong, I do like Swift. I do like some parts of Swift. Um, but if you look at something like Swift, like pointer manipulation in Swift, it's, it's actually, it's harder than C++. It takes more, it's like more cognitive overhead to do some pointer manipulations in Swift. Um, and at that point, I, I'm sort of questioning, well, what problem are we actually solving with Swift? Because it's no longer any, it's not, it's no longer any, it's not swifter, if you know what I mean. Um, 
So, so that's, that's one thing. Developers are people just like us. And a lot of times they have really, really interesting stories about how they got into a programming language, out of a programming language, how they got into programming in the first place. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that have a degree in music or have some affinity for music, or maybe they have a degree in something else like theater, and then they wound up getting into programming for other reasons. I actually used to work with a whole team of people that all had law degrees that wrote code. It's just interesting to me how people have come along in their careers as developers. So we have a show for you. So if you're into Ruby, go check out My Ruby Story. That's at myrubystory.com. And then another thing is like, I think another problem that we're severely neglecting um, as an industry is how to focus on things that encourage more productivity. So I'll give you an example. If you look at build times in Swift, build times in Swift are very, very, very slow. Um, even the ray tracer I worked on, the exact same code in C++, it was, I think it was, you know, 500 milliseconds to compile. Swift was about five or six seconds. So that's, you know, that's a huge difference. And if you multiply that out, it becomes even worse. Um, and it just means that your whole workflow is slower. So every time you want to make a change, you have to wait longer. You, that means you make less changes. That means you can make less improvements because you can't see all of the options. And it, it sort of just has this, this quite cumulative effect where it seems like a small thing, you know, like having a, a longer build time. Or, you know, who cares really? I'll just go get a coffee or whatever. But it actually has a huge impact on uh, your productivity as a programmer. So I'd, I'd really like to see modern languages focus on that. How can we make... How can we make you more, what kind of features can we add to make things, make it more productive for you rather than, you know, like, oh, here's the flavor, you know, here's the, the new API flavor of the month, whatever, you know, while that stuff's cool, like it, it doesn't really matter if it takes like a minute just to, to see what changes, you know, what, what the results of your changes. When it comes to iOS um, or Swift specifically, sorry, uh, do you think that these are improvements that should be made in the tooling side and Xcode or in the language itself? Yeah, they're probably both. I think like I'd love to go to a WWDC and just say, Hey, we didn't make any new APIs this year, but we sped up the build times by, you know, four times or something. Cause that would make a huge difference. That, that would just make a huge difference to being able to like, um, iterate over ideas because if you're a programmer and if you're say you're designing like a ui or something or you know like a, a sort of a, a quite complex algorithm then you want to be able to like see the results of that and you want to be able to see it quickly so um yeah i think it, it's probably a bit of both like it's probably down to the way that swift is built for instance uh, maybe there are a lot of like um, type checking and the, there's a whole bunch of stuff in there um, in the compiler that probably slows things down a bit. Um, but also the tools as well. Like the tools are, yeah, I mean, I'll be completely honest. I don't even really use Xcode, even for iOS development. I'll actually use Vim and then I'll just use Xcode as a debugger um, because Vim's just faster. It's faster. It's quicker to move around files. It's quicker to make changes. Um, I don't have to wait like three seconds for the autocomplete to work. The autocomplete is just instant. And that's, you know, those are little things that, once again, they add up a lot. And if you're doing an autocomplete, you know, 300 times a day, then, you know, 300 times three seconds is actually a lot of time. So 
So those kind of things I think are really important and I, I really wish that um, Apple, and well, it's not just Apple, but everyone would, would focus in that direction much more. Right. Well, I think the, um, the safety of Swift is part of what slows it down because I know that I saw a talk um, at the Swift by Northwest last October and I can't remember what the company was, but they were talking about what they had done to try to speed up their Swift project. Um, right. And one of the things that, that they found was that by not relying on type inference and instead of specifying the type for all of their properties and variables, uh, actually sped things up noticeable. Uh, it was enough of okay. an improvement that they implemented it project-wide. Okay, that's that's good to know. Yeah, so, you know, maybe, yeah, um, maybe you know, there, if there are things the program can do there, then that's, um, that's probably good as well. Um, there's a there's a really interesting talk, um, and a lot of a lot of the stuff I'm I'm sort of just parroting what um, Jonathan Blow, Casey Muratori, they the two programmers I look up to a lot, and they have um I've, I've, I think I put a link in, in my document, but um, maybe we can share the link later. They they did these really good talks about how software is getting more and more and more and more complex, and there must be some reasonable upper limit to that complexity you can't just keep adding more complexity on top of complexity and um they they sort of treating it almost to the point where um it's becoming a bit of a crisis and they want to like i think a, a lot of the motivation for for them giving these talks is to try and get people to reduce that complexity and let's try and make things simpler because a lot of the program a lot of the problems we're solving aren't actually that hard but we're making them very hard for ourselves just by having that extra complexity. Well, cool. Well, thanks for for sharing. I think we are all going to switch to C plus plus now, right? So, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't recommend C plus plus either. C plus plus has a whole bunch of different problems. Um, That's, I, I was a professional developer for C plus plus for many years, and we had many compile time issues. Right. Uh, hopefully, hopefully yeah. Swift can catch up, and it makes me sad that people are making like code changes to try and fix compile times and. Like what the right. app, that's not, they're not alone. A lot of companies are doing that because if you have a large app, you've got 30 second compile times, which is, which is rough. Yeah. That's a big yeah. 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 Um, if you're changing, yeah. If you're changing the color, the color of a button and you have to wait 30 seconds, then yeah, it's just, your day is going to be very long. Yeah. The new modern build system does speed things up. Um, enough that it was worthwhile to, to have it put in, but I, I think there's still a lot of improvements that can be made. Right. Yeah. Yeah, um, like it, it just going back to the C plus plus thing, even that's pretty slow. Like if you if you um, put all of your if you define all your C plus plus modules as, as separate objects that then get linked at the end, that's actually quite slow as well. But um, you can do things with C plus plus, like you can um, do what's called the Unity build, where you just literally include all of your source files in the one big source file, and it just compiles the whole thing, and it's super fast. It's it's really fast. Um, and, you know, I'd love to see those kind of speeds as well. No, definitely. Um, we're running a little bit short on time. Anything else we should cover before we get to the picks? Anything else you want to say? Um, not really, other than just um, if you're a programmer and you're out there, I think it's um, it's really worthwhile. I think one one thing I iterated on the um, TriSwift um, talk, and I think it's really worthwhile, is, is for people to really just get into things. Like if you, if you um, want to learn about something, really get into it, you know, figure out how it actually works and maybe go and build your own framework or build your own version of it, even if it's not, you know, anything that's going to be used commercially or anything that, that you want to release, but just for your own learning purposes, really get into it. It's, it's always worth it, I found. 
Um, and I, I definitely found it with the ray tracing, just just really getting into it, figuring out how the math worked, figuring out how the whole thing worked. Um, it made a huge difference, I think. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I remember when I was trying to understand uh, MVVM, we were even using it in a project, but we were using a reactive framework to do it. And um, that kind of abstracted my ability to understand what was happening in a way. And I ended up... Yeah. I ended up following um, kind of a, a guide or a suggestion by Ian Keen on Slack that uh, who had made his own little uh, framework for uh, piping values back and forth. And so I, I just made my own also. And as soon as I did that, I, I just understand the whole concept completely. Right, okay. It wasn't magic anymore. Yeah, there's, there's some famous quote where you say, if you, you can only truly understand something if you build it yourself or something like that. Uh, yeah, that sounds, um, that's, I think that's absolutely true. Um, another example is I'm I'm doing some um, OpenGL stuff now, and it's it's all just so much easier now that I've done the ray tracing stuff. There's a lot of that and that knowledge sort of carries on quite nicely. Very cool. Well, let's get to the picks, Abby. What do you have okay. first? Sure. Um, I actually have an app that I discovered yesterday. It's called uh, Ami. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's A U M I, and it's an app that was built by an 18-year-old named Ethan Shellcross, and it's a daily activity and mood tracker. Basically, it's for like healthy mental self-care, and he built it because he's uh, on it. He's autistic or on the autism spectrum, and he wanted to build it for people like him to manage their his his symptoms and their symptoms because he couldn't find anything that uh, you know that really really fit his needs and. That is so well done. I'm completely floored that this is his first release and that he's only 18. Uh, it's it's really well done. It's nice looking. Um, it's only on its like 1.2 release right now. There's some um, UI issues a little bit, but he interacts with people on Twitter and he's getting those worked out. And I really think that um, it'd be really helpful for people who uh, have anxiety or ADHD or any other kind of like mental health challenges because there's this, mm. it prompts you, uh, how you could say every half hour, every two hours, whatever you want, it prompts you to record your your mood. And instead of doing a calendar type thing for your daily activities, it uses a, an energy level thing. So you know, you start the day, you tell you say how much energy you have on a scale of negative ten to plus ten. You know, if I wake up in the morning and I feel drained, I might say I've only got three. And then you list the activities you're doing each day with. Uh, an energy rating that could be negative or positive because maybe relaxing is positive energy, but you know, going grocery shopping is a, a drain. And so you, it allows um, people to see where they, where they're sitting for their energy levels. And if they've climbed too much for that day, if it's going to you know take too much out of them, if they need to put in some more rest time, uh, I'm just, I'm just really, really amazed at what a great job he did with this. So again, it's a U M I. A U M I. It's just about us. It sounds cool. Awesome. Yeah. Put a link yeah. in the show notes to that and we'll, sure. so we can check it out. I, I was going to say, I think there, there'll be a lot of, um, in the future, there'll be a lot of room for those kind of apps. Um, ones that help you sort yourself out, if you know what I mean, like almost like self-help apps or something, um, really, you know, helping you sort out your mental state and your, you know, I think I think his uh, his main goal was that there's a lot of apps out there that kind of do try to do mood tracking or they give you meditations or they do all kinds of things, but they're not made by people who are autistic. Um, and so right. no, nothing fit his needs. Like there's even um, a part inside it with a sensory profile. So you can rate, you know, if, um, which I think would be great for parents. 
to put in their child's sensory profile. So if you're very sensitive to light, but not sensitive to sound and very sensitive to touch, uh, and also can say like how to tell if I'm upset. So if a caregiver or a stranger, um, you know, is handed the phone by a kid who's like having a meltdown, they can look and be like, okay, I can't touch this kid, but if I talk to them, it'll calm them down because all that info is in there. Okay. Yeah. No, it's very cool. I look forward to checking that out. It's an important, important issue. Uh, Capsi, do you have a pick for us? Pick? Um, well, I'll have to, it's going to be, a, can I give a YouTube talk? Is that okay? That's all good. Okay, great. So a YouTube talk, it's by a programmer I respect and admire. Um, it's, it's called The 30 Million Line Problem. And um, it's a very interesting talk. It's probably a little bit controversial. Like not many people, it'll probably divide a few people, but it really makes you think. Um, so I, I don't want to explain it too much, but it goes into the idea that um, sort of touches on what I was talking about before, where if you do a very simple operation, say in your web browser, you're actually touching millions and millions and millions of lines of code. Like if you look at the entire code base of every single API and every single piece of software and all of the all of the hardware and all of that stuff in between, it's you're touching a, 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 a unimaginable amount of code. Um, and he, he sort of goes on to explain that this isn't actually necessary um, and we can actually do much better here. We can make things much faster and much more stable, much more secure even um, with um, some, some more thoughtful kind of hardware design. And um, he goes on to, to talk about something called a common ISA, uh, which I, can't really explain too much here, but it's, it's a very interesting tool. It's quite thought-provoking. Um, awesome. No, I look forward to checking that out. Uh, so, Capsi, if people want to find you, how can they find you? Uh, Twitter's the best place. I'm Capsi1312. Send me a message. Um, love to hear from you. Okay. Well, great. Well, thanks for coming on the show. I, I learned a lot about ray tracing, and I got some more ideas for how we can improve uh, programming languages and compilers. Uh, for everyone else, we'll talk to you next week. Great. Thanks, Thanks for having me, Jane. Sure. Yeah, have a great day. Bye. You too. See you later. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.